Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. In our last episode, we discussed the Robeson murders, one of Michigan's most infamous and gruesome crimes. Today, we are joined by Christy Dickinson, author of Somerset, a book about the Goodhart murders as they are often referenced, to continue the discussion and gain a new perspective and hopefully bring some sense of closure to a case that has been classified as unsolved for 54 years as of this month. Welcome, Christy. Hi, Chris. Thank you. Now, you're on California time, so thank you for joining us this morning, bright and early. You're welcome. It is early, 6 (laughs) a.m. Now, even though you're in California, uh, we both share Lansing area code on our cell phones. Uh, What's your connection to Northern Michigan? I was uh, raised in Northern Michigan. I went to school there and graduated from high school there, and my whole family still lives there. So when I go home to visit from California, that's where I go, Harbor Springs. Worst places in the world to come visit, right? Yeah, right. Now, you have four books you have written in your Harbor Secret series. What inspired the series? That series was inspired by true local history. Each book has a different topic that's based on something true, often something I've heard about my whole life or else something that I uncovered more recently. So I take the true local history and I build a story around it and turn it into historical fiction. Okay. And what are the other titles of your books uh, and their subject matter? The first one is The Tunnels. And... All my life, I well, not all my life, probably starting in late high school and college, I heard stories about a house at the edge of town that has tunnels running through the woods around it. And so that inspired the first book. And by the way, we, De- did, a, um, we did a whole series on, uh, well, one episode on um, the Club Manitou a few months back. Oh, cool. I think I missed that one. I have been listening to your podcast, so I'm Surprised I missed that one. I'll have to look for it. Yeah, we'll get you hooked up with that one. And your second book? My second book is Devil's Elbow. And some websites list Devil's Elbow as one of the most haunted places in Michigan. And I've always been intrigued by the sign at the bend that tells about the Native American legend of the spirit living there. And so I did a ton of research on that and uncovered some pretty cool stuff, I think. Some stuff I didn't even know before when I started. Partway through, I learned even more. So that was really fun. I'm going to have to get that book. That's uh, that's always been a, a point of interest for myself as I'm driving up and down uh, 119 also. Yeah. And then the third book is called Leviathan. And I started writing a book about um, the local summer resorts and uh, one just above Week Batonsing there. And I was doing the research on it, and I started finding newspaper articles from the turn of the century about sea serpent sightings in the harbor. And it wasn't just one or two, and it wasn't like the local drunken town. It would be a whole steamship full of people coming up from Chicago, and they'd be on the deck, and they would see the sea serpent. And it was an accepted part of life in Michigan, and... Uh, They had a sea serpent in the parade, like a float in the parade in Petoskey. And the baseball team, I think, was called the uh, Tusky Sea Serpents. So um, I was really intrigued by that and dug into that. And so I took all the articles and worked them into the story, built a story around it. I spent my whole life uh, longing to finally visit Loch Ness. And as you may know, and may not know, um, when the glaciers retreated 10,000 years ago, they left us with these beautiful great lakes we have here. 
but that's also the exact same era as Loch Ness and Loch Morar and the surrounding lochs in Scotland. And I've come across that story about the Petoskey Sea Serpent many times, and uh, I find that very intriguing myself. <laughs> oh, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I want to go to Loch Ness, too. Just for the reason to see the sea serpent, not really for anything else. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of history there, obviously, and uh, it does relate back to northern Michigan. It's funny, I was in a, a, a castle, and they asked me if I, they, I wanted to see the 1880s-era barracks where they housed all the American prisoners, and it looked very much like the, the uh, cells up on Mackinac Island. Oh, wow. So Very gonna, cool. You'll find great, great history there if you get there. But I'm telling you what, even here in Lake Michigan, I swim with my feet up just a little bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think twice now. The Goodhart murders have intrigued people for over 50 years now and have sparked much debate. Now, you're a self-proclaimed author of romance and historical fiction like we just discussed. What inspired you to write about this morbid chapter in Emmett County's past? That story I have heard about ever since I was a little kid. And I heard all different theories. And whenever there was a newspaper article with the anniversary, um, on the anniversary date, there would be newspaper articles. My mom would send one to me. She cut it out and mail it. And I just always had this kind of, I've just been intrigued by it, I guess I would say. And so after I wrote The Tunnels and I worked with local historian Rick Wiles on that, he was really anxious to give me information about the Robeson family murders. And I had already started Devil's Elbow. And I was like, I can't have another story in my head right now. You have to wait. I have to get one out at a time. And so um, when I finally got to that point where I was ready for the information, he was so excited to share it. And there is a whole, well, there's a Michigan room in the Petoskey Library. And there's a whole section with white binders of information on this murder, like interviews and just photos, everything you can imagine, all the clues. And so I spent a lot of time going through that and um, I put the story together from there. As I was kind of uh, doing some research on my own, if you Google the murders, uh, Rick's name comes up about 500 times. <laughs> oh, I bet. He's so knowledgeable, so helpful too. Really appreciate all the help he gave me. It, I mean, he's helped me with all of these books. He's a great resource. And that's the thing with Rick is he shares all of his information, which I find very, uh, very generous. Not all historians uh, do that. Yes, I agree. Now, this was a gruesome murder. Uh, for those that are not familiar with some of the details surrounding the case, the bodies of the victims were left in the cabin with all the windows closed. The heat was turned all the way up. It was almost a month after the murders before reports of a terrible order permeating from the cabin and reaching far up the wooded bluff above Lake Michigan began causing concern among other summer resorters. Upon entry of the cabin by a concerned caretaker, Mrs. Robeson's body was found lying covered from the knees up with a blanket, sending the caretaker running in horror. After the authorities arrived, they discovered not only were all the family members shot and killed, some were also bludgeoned after death, most likely with a hammer. The youngest victim was that of the Robeson's seven-year-old daughter, who was among those bludgeoned. Eventually, it was determined Mrs. Robeson's body was also desecrated to make it look like the primary motive was that of a sexual nature and confuse the motive of the killer. News reports of the crime scene often included the words heinous and brutal. Christy, was describing the murder difficult for you? No, surprisingly, it wasn't. And I, I get a little grossed out by stuff pretty easily, but for some reason, it didn't. Maybe I just saw so many pictures and read so many accounts that I kind of became a little hardened to it. 
but um, no, it, it didn't. Rick sent a couple of images recently to me, and those are the first ones I've seen of the crime scene, and uh, it, it was very overwhelming uh, for me. But I guess if you're if you're trying to report on something like this, you have to kind of step aside and desensitize yourself a certain amount. And then is that probably what you did for this particular case? I think I was so focused on and trying to learn more what people were feeling or the story or the why that I didn't I didn't focus in as much on the brutality. Yes, it was horribly brutal. And I think one of the reviews on my book said that they were surprised at how graphically it was described. And that doesn't really go in a romance book usually. So it was kind of a crossover thing for me. But I think I was more focused on the who and the why and what everyone was feeling and their relationships and things like that. And so that probably helped get me through that and kind of get past the brutality part of it. I personally don't think there's a way you could overemphasize the brutality that was involved that day. So um, that critique was probably a little unjust. What, yeah, maybe uh-huh, an ex- one of my books because I don't usually get that graphic. What was one of the most challenging parts for you while you were writing this book? The most challenging part was the amount of details and especially the ones that were critical for solving the mystery which are things like shell casings and bullets and gun calibers and different kinds of guns. And it's something that I have absolutely zero interest in and try as I might to learn this information. I had to keep notes next to me the whole time and keep referring back because I just could not retain that kind of information. That's just not something that usually piques my interest. I usually go for weird stuff like sea serpents or something like that goes that kind of stuff gets my gets my attention on the same but i'm a little bit of a of a i, I am a, a shooter so I, I grew up around guns i don't hunt but i do like to target shoot so i was familiar with uh, the weapons they were describing and that, that kind of came a little bit more natural for me oh okay yes that would do it talked about keeping notes uh were there other ways you tried to sort of educate yourself, I guess, towards the, the logistics as far as the firearms and some of the other details of the case? I had a bulletin board with photos of the weapons on them also, and photos of other things like photos of the crime scene. And I kept that in front of me all the time because, and maybe that's why I wasn't so, um, I, I can't think of the word right now, but I wasn't so turned off by the crime scene, maybe because I looked at it every day for years until this was completed. And so I think maybe I was a little less phased by it. Your writing studio must look like a, for, a forensic lab for a while then. I know. It doesn't look like, or it didn't look like a romance author's kind of place they would hang out. <laughs> that, that's the contrast I find interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the theories surrounding the Robeson murders seem to have been exhausted in several books. There's, there's many out there in other media. How is your book different than what's been written before or even after since, since your, you know, your publication? I think my book is different because my book has a different killer identified in it that I come to the conclusion this person killed the Robeson family and here's why. And I think all the other books have someone different as, uh, as the suspect for the murders. And so... I did, again, a lot of, a lot, lot, lot of research with 
Rick Wiles, the local historian. I went to the crime scene. I went to the Petoskey Library, tried to pick up on some vibes from what was going on with going to the crime scene and where the cottage was and things like that. I went there a couple times. And um, I think I have correctly identified the killer. And so I'm sure each author thinks that too, but <laughs> I feel pretty confident about it and um, spent a lot of time with Rick working on it. So I, I would regularly send him like 10 questions a day. Well, what about this? What about that? And he always had a plausible answer. That's Rick. <laughs> yep. And that area is so strange. It's so um, it's so peaceful and again idyllic as you would imagine uh, when you were visiting Northern Michigan. You know, located on the water, bluffs behind oh, you. Um, it's the beautiful lot. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And I'm not usually taken by just an empty lot. Usually, I'm taken by a house, but that lot is just gorgeous. I've known uh, one of the other owners that have owned that property. Uh, and he feels that there's nothing but a bad karma down there. Um, and a, a lot of things in his life went went wrong during the period when he owned that property. And he, he was very happy to be away from it. And it's so strange because, again, you know, that's that's such a, I guess, like one of my dream locations to build a home and retire is right there. Um, just to the left of that, maybe four lots down is where Bob Seeger had a, a long time, for a long time, had a cabin also. So, yeah. Know, it, it is a place where, you know, even the wealthy and, and rich rock stars come to, to hide out from the rest of the people. And, and that's kind of the safety that was there, that, that sense of security and seclusion and anonymity, you know, when you're there. Yeah, but it's also isolation and you're kind of a sitting duck. I mean, where are you going to go? Run into the woods? I mean, you can only get so far. And so there's there's that bad thing about it. One of the um, things I find very coincidental is that when my book came out and um, I went to the lot to check it out, the lot was for sale. And I think it's the first time in about 50 years that it's been for sale. And I think it's sold since then. Do you know anything about that? Nope. I just know that the one owner, and he had some some interesting anecdotes, again, revolving around he and Bob Seeger and, and just the property and sort of the vibe down there. You know, I'm kind of into. I do a lot of the ghost uh, tours in town, and I just, I just feel that uh, that property is probably forever tainted in a certain sense. But for me, it would be. For instance, right yeah. now in California, the, the site of the Tate murder uh, house had been had been raised back in the '90s after Trent Reznor had recorded an album there, and a, a mega mansion was built. And I think it's for sale for around forty million dollars right now. But people are kind of shying away from it for the fact that it's built right on the Tate murder scene. Well. Going along that line, I'm kind of wondering who bought that lot and if they know or if they knew before they bought it what happened there. I hope there was some disclosure. We're going to put Rick on finding out who uh, who owns the property today. <laughs> I, I think I asked him 20 questions about that already. I don't think he knew. <laughs> well, we uh, but, I, I belong to Rotary, and, and every month and we had one of the, the prosecutors come in and, and talk about the Robeson murder cases uh, at our at our Rotary Club, um, every month the Emmett County Prosecutor's Office is obligated to open the files on the Robeson murders and reevaluate the evidence, as it is still categorized as an open, quote, unsolved cold case, officially and unofficially. It seems the undeniably vast amount of circumstantial evidence in the case uh, does point to kind of the, the main culprit, which most people come to the conclusion was Joseph Scalera, 
um, as being the assailant. Uh, Scalero was uh, an executive employee of Mr. Robinson's and was apparently embezzling from the company at the time of the murders. Uh, but for many, still to this day, there are unresolved loose ends. Christy, can you share some information now, or is it in your book, an additional perspective or answers that maybe somebody has overlooked that kind of has helped you kind of define who you think was the uh, assailant? I did come to a few additional conclusions. Some I worked into the book as fiction, and some I, I, I have a feeling that I might be correct on. I believe there's a little truth in every story. And originally, I believe that the murder was only supposed to be of Mr. Robeson. And I think he went there just to kill the father. And I think in the process, because the first shots were fired from outside the cabin, I think in the process after he fired the shots, I think someone turned around and saw him and identified him aloud. Maybe I, I suspect it might have been the little girl, like she was on the couch, her white bunny was left there. So I think she was sitting on the couch. And I think maybe she turned and looked out the window and said, Uncle Joe. That's what she called him. And um, I think once he was identified, then he had to kill them all. And I think the hammering of the skull, because he picked up a hammer from the um, mantle and he bludgeoned the little girl. I think that it's because she's probably the one who identified him, caused him to have to commit this huge mass murder instead of just one murder. And so I think um, that's one of my main conclusions I came to on my own. And then the murder weapons were never found. And so in reading one of the interviews of an ex-con, I kind of suspect that the murderer, probably Mr. Scalero, took his clothing from the murder, which was never found, and the weapons, which were never found. And I think he drove them back to the Birmingham, Lather Village area. And I think he had a connection with this ex-con and he gave him this heavy suitcase of weapons and murder clothes and anything else that would tie him to the murder and gave him a car to use. And I think the ex-con went to visit his family in Alabama. And I think that he went to a foundry there and threw it into an empty box car that was going into the foundry. And my suspicion is it was burned into oblivion or melted. So that's my little theory there. But there are always other loose ends like um, Shirley Robeson's missing engagement ring and um, the missing shell outside the cabin. I believe there were five shots fired from outside and there were only four shells found and so I took those little pieces and I worked them into the fictional part of the story with what I suspect happened to them and um, but there's always other things that just kind of stay in the back of my mind like there years later there was an abandoned car found beside the road and in the glove box there was a name tag from Shirley Robeson's suitcase just the name tag from the suitcase. And Rick said um, someone took all the suitcases in the cottage and donated them to the Salvation Army. 
and someone just took it off of there, which could have happened. But if everything smelled so badly in that cottage that everything had to be burned, I can't imagine the suitcases would not be horribly stinky as well. And I would think those would be burned. So I don't know if someone carried something out in a suitcase or maybe they just took something cut off a tag. I don't know. So I find that part of it very intriguing. I just still don't really have a good answer for that. It, it seems like most of your evidence kind of verifies the more credible theories that it was uh, a sclera. Uh, but you, you've, you've put some really interesting points in there that kind of officially, you know, you thought that the target was mainly Mr. Robeson, but there's some odd things going on with Mrs. Robeson also with the, the ring and uh, the personal effects. That, that, that's something I had not come across uh, before. That's true. That's true. And how her body was found, I explored that in several different theories in my book. Her body was found with her underwear at her ankles and with a blanket over her. None of the other bodies had a blanket over them. And it's it's probably set up to make it look like she was and maybe that was the cause for the murders. Um, but the reports say that she was not so it was just a setup. And so that just brings up so many other questions. Like some people thought she had a secret lover, but in my research, Mr. Robeson is the one who had secret lovers. And there's just all kinds of theories, but, um, but yeah, it, what a, that poor woman, what a humiliating way to have your body found and I mean, good grief, clip her underwear. <laughs> you know, thank God that there wasn't a sexual assault. But in these cases, sometimes in a morbid sense of uh, sort of respect for the deceased, you'll see that they will cover up one body or, or the body. In this case, you have, you have just her body being covered up. So that makes me think, again, there was some type of an emotional attachment between the person. And it could have been a very twisted emotional attachment, but that's usually a sign of some type of of respect or, you know, trying to give them some dignity, I guess, even after death. That's, that's so strange that the, the, the juxtaposition of, of the, the, the underwear and, the, and then them also covering her body, that just seems contradictory, uh, something strange going on there. Yes, exactly. That's a really good point. I didn't know that about the, the history that that has happened before. Similarly, it could be a sign of respect or some kind of um, attachment to that person. It's just very interesting, like why some people were drug over and piled on top of the grate and why she wasn't. Um, her engagement ring, which I guess was pretty substantial, was never found. So if they took it, they never sold it. Or if they sold it, it wasn't known where it came from. Sounds yeah. like maybe it was more of a trophy. Maybe. That's a good idea, yeah. Uh, in contrast, uh, Mr. Robeson's body was drug over the uh, in-floor heating grate. The heat was cranked up, so that kind of tells you what, what condition his body would have been in after a month of the natural elements combined with the, the heating system kicking on at uh, 90 degrees plus all day long, all night long. Yeah, they were all mummified. They were just like mummies in there, even whether they were over the great or not, is my understanding, and going from the pictures, too. There was a note that was left outside the door to kind of throw people off, and it said the Robesons had left for 
a week or two, and they had headed towards, and I'm not particularly clear what that note said. Could you give us a little bit of insight on that? Oh, that said, I believe it said be back 7-10, and it gave a date. I'm not sure if 7-10 is the date, but it was a few a few weeks out after the murders, and so that kind of gave the killer a couple weeks head start to get away, cover his trail. But the interesting thing is they tied the murder time to a couple tree trimmers that were there. And so the tree trimmers talked to Mr. Robeson, I think the last time was around 4.30 in the afternoon. And they think the murderer was watching from the woods at that time. And then after the tree trimmers left, that's when he made his move. And then the tree trimmers were back to finish the job the next day. And the note was on the door. So... That's how they narrow down the time and the date. That's interesting. There is one other interesting clue that I found I did not include it in my book. Um, there was a note, another note found on a napkin, and it was written by the little girl. And it said something like, uh, Dad and I did it. And that was found oh in the God. garbage. <laughs> and oh I, it was just very very odd um like did the murderer after everyone was killed or something did he force her to write that and then changed his mind or you know you kind of wonder what happened with that note i had not heard about that note either i have to do a little bit more research <laughs> yeah i've got a photo of it i can i can look up and send to you if you want yeah that note really intrigued me like what else would it be referring to? Like on a napkin or something written with a marker on a napkin. And it was found in the garbage of the cottage. Nearly 54 years later, 54 years this summer, um, the case is still considered unsolved. And, and there's reasons behind that based on Michigan law. Uh, do you think there'll ever be complete closure in this case? It's my understanding that they cannot close the case because their prime suspect killed himself. That's exactly right. And so it's my understanding that the person that I name in the book is the, and I do use a fictionalized name for him in the book, found out that a warrant had been issued for his arrest. And this is like two years after the fact. And he had, in the meantime, he had, bought Mr. Robeson's business from the family and he bought it for a song for much, much less than it was valued at. And then he ran it into the ground and then he opened his own business nearby. And I think his mom was his receptionist or secretary. And he got wind that a warrant had been issued for his arrest and I guess they were on their way to arrest him and he put a note on the door and then killed himself in his office. And he talks about how he's not a good person in the suicide note and how he owes everyone money and he's a liar, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of says all these confession-like things about himself, but then just as an after afterthought he writes a ps and said i had nothing to do with the robeson family murders something like i'm not quoting it but and then something like um i might be a, a murderer but i'm not a liar or something although earlier he said he owes everyone money and 
kind of think he confessed to being a liar there. So it's a little contradictory in the note. But it's just interesting how the PS had nothing to do with the murders. It's just an afterthought. That's what they were coming to arrest him for. It's kind of, I'm sure that's been on his mind 24-7 for the last two years. Absolutely. And um, supposedly in the note, he, he the note was kind of directed uh, for his mother's sake. Uh, she was the yeah. one person who never, never gave up faith. And uh, so he wanted her to know that he, you know, he was not involved in it. He also called one of the detectives that had, had issued the third polygraph. And he was encouraged over the time when, when they were interacting to just come forth and tell the truth. They were unable to get a, a positive reading on the, on the polygraph. So he fooled at least three polygraph examinations prior to killing himself after he knew that that warrant had been issued. Uh, he did call that state police uh, polygraph detective who had administered the polygraph. He, he was not home at the time, um, but Sclero did leave a message with his son, I believe, uh, but it was it was inconclusive. He didn't he didn't really leave any information. It'd just be interesting to, to know what he would have told him that day. I know. I have thought about that, too, and that's actually in my book, that phone call. I did not know he left a message. I thought they just found out by getting his phone records and seeing who he called, because I think the little boy answered and then called his dad to come to the phone, and then he took too long or something, and Scalero hung up. That was my understanding, but have you heard about a phone message that was left? Yeah, and again, you, you come across all these different accounts. So again, I usually like to run things past Rick when there's a contradiction because he's done so much research and, as well as you know yourself. But first I heard that, that this message left with the wife and then the son, and then again, maybe it just was a deadline that they traced to uh, Scalero after the fact. But he definitely made that phone call to that particular um, you know, police officer. Right. I got that part. I just didn't know what the messages were um, other than you think like it was just have them call back so-and-so. I don't think it was a callback. <laughs> I think he knew what he was doing from that point on. You know, I think he had set his uh, plan in, in motion that he was going to take his own life prior to being tried and, and most, most likely convicted. I mean, there's circumstantial evidence and then there's circumstantial evidence compounded by 10, you know, and that's kind of what it is with Scalero. There, there, there's so much that it would just be almost impossible in my mind for any of these circumstantial evidence, all that to stack up and not, not be definitive and incriminating, you know, in a, in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. I think it was past that point. Yeah, and I think after one of the polygraph tests, the detective who administered it said something like, "You and I both know that you did it," and I think Scalero like kind of maybe felt relieved having that off, having that knowledge out there, or he felt some kind of bond with him because of that. And so maybe that's why he called him. That's my understanding. And I thought, then you have like <clears throat> two or three polygraph tests. And then I think one of them came back positive, but you can't convict someone on a polygraph test is right. my understanding. And, and Rick's thought, too, is, again, it kind of ties in with this. You know, Scalero had really um, uh, offered way too much help. He was he was too interested uh, in the case, even though he was very close and, uh, um, you know, maybe a possible person of interest. It, it just seems like uh, it became kind of uh, apparent to the detectives that he was spending way too much time coming in and asking questions and, and, and offering advice, trying to kind of mislead them and direct them in their investigation. Rick believes that uh, Scalero had probably become somewhat of a sociopath which would help him pass those polygraph tests. He wasn't absolutely convinced in his mind that he had, he had done something wrong. Of course, there's insurance policies that were 
that were pending. It looked like he had been embezzling and paying uh, exorbitant checks to himself and some of the employees and bonuses. And then also there was a, a $200,000 insurance policy that he was kind of planning on collecting, but he was not aware yeah. that Mr. Scalera, or I'm sorry, Scalera was not aware that Robeson had never taken the mandatory health exams that would have put the policy into play. So he, that, that policy was void and null after Robeson's uh, passing, which I think was quite a shock to Scalera. Yes. And that is so interesting. I mean, that that could have been like one of the main motivations for the murder. Like he'd run up all this debt and he wanted to pay it back and be like on the up and up financially. And so he was going to kill them and get this key man insurance policy, which means he was the key man at this advertising agency. So he would get this insurance policy. And I, he reminded Mr. Robeson several times before the murders to go get this exam. And Mr. Robeson always put it off. And I think he thought that he had finally gone and gotten this physical exam taken. And so then after the murders, when he found out, I think Mr. Robeson kind of got the last laugh on that one. And I'm sure... Scalero was just beside himself having heard that this insurance policy was not in effect. I think it kind of uh, kind of set, set the rest of the plan in motion as far as, well, it's, it's interesting you said that he purchased the company and tried running it for the family, um, but was not obviously doing such a great job with that. I think his mind was other places at that time. And he was never good at it anyway. I mean, he kind of like befriended Dick Robeson and worked in close to the family and that's kind of how he got up where he was and he said he was handling stuff with the company but he wasn't he was placing false ads in their their magazine Impresario which is an art magazine that Mr. Robeson put out and he was he was just kind of not doing things on the up and up before that and so, yeah, it's not because of his skill, and that's evidenced because later, you know, when he got the company, he bought it, and then he just ran it into the ground, and then he wasn't doing so hot on his own either, and everyone knew him as a liar by then, and, you know, he just had a bad reputation. I think he was definitely a manipulator who kind of was uh, maybe, a you know, somewhat of a, no offense, but like that, that used car salesman's kind of uh, mentality where he was he was selling his product, which was not the product that was uh, going to contribute to a successful business and um, kind of leads back to that somewhat sociopathic or narcissistic behavior that you'd see in, in a situation like this. Exactly. He was a total narcissist. And one of the weird things is um, he bought two of everything. No, don't when laugh. He... I do the same thing. So please don't group me in. My wife. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so <laughs> I, I also dated a narcissist and he bought two of everything, too. And so I think I dodged a bullet by getting away from that guy. Well, I'm hopefully I'm not a narcissist. I'm just a little OCD. And uh, so I, <laughs> if I buy a sweater that I like, I have to make sure I have a backup. And that was Scalera's uh, MO also. Two, two, two guns, the, the, the weapons. One of them was very rare that was used in the, in the murder. Uh, he had two of those. The rifle, he had two of those. The pair of boots that were sort of incriminating, he had two sets of those. It, it was confusing to the yes. police, but all of a sudden, Valera's wife said, you know, by the way, do you know that he buys two of everything? Yeah, that that's very odd. And then his ammunition that he used also. I mean, he didn't just go out and get every man's cheap generic bullets or something. You know, he got this Seiko brand or Sacco 
and I think that's imported from, it's been a while, is it from Finland or something? And yeah, that that brand I'm not familiar with, but we know that he was using a you know a private gun range, and I, I think that's kind of was what, what his downfall was. Emmett County didn't have the resources and weren't necessarily motivated to try this case. Uh, the prosecutor had no experience, you know, prosecuting a murder case, and they just I guess the the the, the statement that they kept making was maybe not not officially but unofficially is we don't mind tourists coming up here and spending their money here, but we're not going to spend a bunch of money to try to solve the death of a of a, of a tourist. It was when those casings were found in Oakland County at, at uh, Scalera's father-in-law's private gun range that the ballistics started matching up perfectly, and that's when that uh, arrest order was issued, and again, in Oakland County versus here in Emmett County, and that's that's when the, when the house of cards began to fall. Yep, that was the breakthrough clue, and that's just so interesting that he used this unique ammunition for the murders, and then he had used it at the shooting range as well, and so... I guess they can ID it and tell what gun it was fired from and if they're both fired from the same gun. And it's just so interesting how ballistics and things like that work. Well, it sounds like he was smart, but maybe not so smart in certain aspects because, again, only so many people carry, you know, luxury brand of ammunition when they're going to commit an anonymous murder. Yes. Uh, as a writer of historical fiction, how much of your book, Somerset, is, is fact versus fiction? Because it sounds like you've got a lot of the facts there. I do have a lot of the facts there. And usually with my other books in the series, I take every single piece of fact that I can find and I work it into the story. Somerset was kind of the exception because there were so many facts and so many characters and so many clues and so many false leads that it was just overwhelming. And to even comprehend it is one thing but to work it all into a historical fiction story was just too much and I think it would be difficult for the readers to keep having all these new characters introduced as it is there are a massive amount of characters in that book and I I hesitated to even keep putting them in and put in additional notes and things like that or additional clues like the thing about the napkin that the little girl wrote the note on saying dad and I did it things like that I I had to somewhere along the line trim some stuff out because it was just too much stuff and so this is the first one that I've trimmed anything out of you know I spent my time in a log cabin like that and uh, as, a, as a young boy, and that sense of safety, like you said, the opposite side of that coin is you are sort of secluded and a sitting duck. Uh, unfortunate situation here in northern Michigan. Are you planning any additional books in your Harbor Secrets series? I am. I am planning, and currently about halfway through the fifth book in the series. It's called The Tunnels 2, and it goes back and explores some more of the relationships that were brought about in the tunnels one or the first book in the series and the reason I'm doing that is because after the book came out so many people came out of the woodwork and started contacting me and saying oh I know about this tunnel oh I know about that tunnel and the tunnels are kind of like Bigfoot pictures you know everyone's seen them but no one's got a picture and um but it just really piqued my interest. And even just like a couple months ago, I randomly had a guy reach out to me and say, oh, we've been in the tunnels and 
you know, you need to talk to my friend and this and that and gave me like a whole bunch of new information. And as it turns out, most people who think they have been in the tunnels, and I say that with air quotes, are people who have been in the new tunnel built in the 50s that goes from the old Club Manitou basement to the basement of Club Ponytail. And that tunnel is still there today. And it's just a short food service tunnel that was built to run food from the kitchen in the old club to the new Club Ponytail basement. And so everyone thinks they've been in the tunnels because of that. Even the ones who came in, there was an opening right above it and people would drop in through that hole in the ground into that tunnel. But that's not the tunnel. That's not a tunnel that was built by the Purple Gang of Detroit that was built much later. And so people have actually been in the tunnels. That's a whole different story. Well, I was in the basement, the main infrastructure of the of the uh, Manitou, uh, just two weeks ago, and and uh, you know you, you and I have talked about that, and and so I look forward to your your next book on that, and we'll keep continuing to share information about the old Club Ponytail, Club Manitou, and the infrastructure there. Kind of freaky, it was water coming down, there was ice, and it's just a it's just a it's just a strange place to be, and it's so peaceful upstairs in the in the home, um, and yeah. you know with all this is going on or had gone on downstairs, so. We look forward to your next book. Where can people find your books, Christy? All of my books are available on Amazon. And sometimes the local bookstore in Harbor Springs will have a couple in there. So you can always check there. And I think there might still be a couple out at the Good Heart store as well. Thank you again for, for joining us this morning, early morning for you on the West Coast, to discuss <laughs> one, of the, one of the most infamous unsolved murders in Michigan's history. Again, thank you, Christy Dickinson. Thank you so much, Chris. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for joining us on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I've been your host, Christopher Struble. If there's a topic of interest you would like us to feature on future episodes, or if you're well-versed in a particular aspect of Michigan's history and would like to be a guest, please reach out to us on our Facebook page, Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. <laughs>